Well, thanks all for coming out on a good show on a Tuesday night and busy lives, so thanks for coming. I don't know what you're expecting this evening. I know we've got a whole range of people, people, I mean, some of you are familiar faces, you've heard me before, some of you, you know, church might be completely unfamiliar. So, where to find hope in the most hopeless of circumstances? It's a words that effect, that's the title that uh, Charlotte asked me to speak on. And, uh, you know, I could have approached that in various ways. I could have, you know, gone through all the verses in the Bible on hope and looked at that way. What I've decided to do is just tell some stories of, of being in what is. My home is the poorest country in the world. It's the hungriest country in the world. It's got the highest rate of malnutrition. And according to some recent UN survey, we are the most miserable people in the world. So we're right at the bottom of the pile, of the world's pile. And yet, uh, my experience is not of hopelessness. And I don't know if some of us have come because that title is particularly apt for our lives right now as we battle with despair or emptiness or dashed dreams, or just, you know, all sorts of pain on different levels. But uh, if, if I and the people I work with can, can hold on to hope in the most challenging of, of places, there's, there's hope for you. And, uh, and I think often, you know, we resonate with stories. So I'm going to tell stories and then uh, obviously speak as well from what is my hope, which is, which is rooted in the Christian faith. So we'll start with some pictures. I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think of Africa. But it's certainly a beautiful place. Burundi is a stunning country. It's a bit like the Switzerland of Africa. Burundi and Rwanda, both hit mountainous. And then uh, beyond the beauty, that's, that's, that's pygmy ladies, the poorest of the poor dancing there. Celebration, I got engaged on that lake out there. And then we think of Africa, we think of safari, don't we? So a number of you would have been out there on, on, on safari. Um, one of the advantages of a very screwed up country is that our closest thing we've got to a zoo is uh, there are no rules at this zoo. So it's totally interactive. So we get in the cage with this guy and sit, sit, on, his ta- sit on his back, yank its tails. Great fun. Get out these killer snakes. They say, you'll die in 10 minutes with this one. But obviously not that one. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a python. But uh, yeah, gorilla's been licked by one of those. Don't, don't get drunk and pass out because that might happen to you. Creepy crawlies. Yeah, great snake action. Check your shoes in the morning, you might get a nasty nip. And then you think, crazy, there's lots of crazy stuff going on in Africa, isn't there? (laughs) So we've had the beauty, we've had the animals, we've had the crazy, and then sadly, this is what comes to mind, isn't it? And whether it's Darfur, or uh, Niger, or Somalia... I mean, the list is pretty endless, isn't it, in terms of African states that are really struggling. And uh, it's grim. And that's a powerful image, isn't it? And that's not my literal hand, but I feel like it's my hand because, you know, we we are from a rich country uh, and it's the rich countries that that write the rules, isn't it? They wrote the rules of world trade and uh, I don't think anyone here presumably thinks that a white life is worth more than a black life, but in practice that's the case because, you know, maybe a few people get killed in Paris by some nut- nutcase guys at uh, Charlie Hebdo and a million people get out on the streets. But in, in Nigeria, for example, you know, 13,000 people have been killed by Boko Haram. And, and, you know, you could quote endless things, but statistics, but, but uh, we don't make much of a song and dance about it. And I understand that on some levels because, you know, we can relate to them more. They're from our background. They're the same colour and that sort of stuff. But, but um, there, there's, there's lots of things that are very wrong with the world and, and some stuff that we should be getting angry about. And it was Edmund Burke, philosopher from the 19th century, who said, all that it takes for evil to prosper is for good people to do nothing. 
And there are lots of good people who do nothing or just look after their own nuclear family or, or you know, take care of their own business. And, and so, you know, wherever, wherever I go, I want to challenge people also to get angry about something. Pick a fight, you know. And it doesn't have to be overseas. And actually, at the start, what I always do in my talks is that, you know, I, I believe in God and I believe that God speaks to people. And uh, so to disarm you in terms of agenda, I don't want your money and I, uh, that's not why I'm here and I don't want you to come out to Burundi. Okay, because now you can, then you can just say, all right, he's got no agenda. If, if there's any agenda, I'd just like you to be stirred by these stories and move to, uh, to live different lives or lives more fully. You know, Jesus said, I've come to have life and life to the full. And he didn't, he didn't say, I've come to have life and a safe life or an easy life or a comfortable life. He wants fullness of life. And his fullness of life was only 33 years odd, wasn't it? And I'm 43 now, but I totally believed I'd die before the age of 30. People tried to kill me. People I care about have got killed. And uh, I'm still alive today, which is, which is a gift. But some people, you know, they, they stop living age 25. And uh, you can still be literally alive, but you can be the living dead in a sense. And, uh, and there's still life in you yet, all of us. And, and there's hope. And uh, hopefully these stories will, will stir us to, to recognize the, the, the true source of hope. But, uh, you know, that's, you know, Jesus said so, so many challenging things, didn't he? He said, to those who have been given much, much will be required. And I take that on the chin, on the chin as a very, you know, from a very privileged background. I had life given to me on a plate in terms of a top education and a good job. And, and why did I go out there? I went out there because when I was 24 years old, in a good job, I prayed, God, I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. So that, that was the prayer that took me to the most dangerous country in the world at the time. I know that because my mummy sent me through a newspaper cutting, charting the most dangerous countries in the world. I don't know if she's trying to encourage me or something, but... Uh, the, so that was my prayer. I'll do anything, I'll go anywhere. And to cut a long story short, this, 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 this man tracked me down and I was in this job and he said, it was in the city in Bishopsgate and he said, I believe God sent me to you. And he wants you to go to Burundi and be involved in youth and mission and, and outreach. And I was like, all right. You know, inside, I'm like, God, is this what you kept me for? So I said to him, thanks, weirdo. I'll think about it. I'll be spiritual. I'll pray about it. And I went back to my job and I was in front of the computer. I said, right now, God, in front of the computer, if, you know, if that was you, then I want, a, I want a, a radical sign right now in front of the computer to justify such a radical change of career. Now, that's a specific prayer, isn't it? So right now, Lord, in front of the computer, in this job that's got nothing to do with Brindy, right now, if you want me to go to Brindy, give me a sign. And I picked up the phone, and the voice on the other end took this phone call, and the voice on the other end, out the blue, said, do you know anyone who wants to work in Burundi? <laughs> what do you do with that? Because either I'm lying to you, and I could be lying, couldn't I, but... You know, I guess if we haven't got a, a sort of theistic worldview on any level, we believe purely in the natural plane, then you have to say that was a, either a lie or a coincidence. I suppose it could be a coincidence, but I think many of us would say that wasn't a coincidence, that was a God incident. And there's a lovely verse in the Bible, 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9, it says that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And he's doing that, if you like, in Wanish right now, even amongst us. He says, who's up for it? Who wants to make their life count? He's like, and it could be all of us. The eyes of the Lord, I love that picture. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth because his desire is to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And all I can say is, in response to that prayer, in the last 17 years, I've seen, I've seen a few hundred thousand lives completely transformed, bringing hope in the most pitiful circumstances. And seeing incredible transformation. It's been very, very exciting. A real privilege to be a part of. Now, some of you, because you know me, know about Burundi. But if you didn't, that's where it is, to the south of Rwanda. And uh, it's just the size of 
Wales, it's not a big place. That's what the whole area is known for, so genocide. And Rwanda got all the headlines because of 1994, but Burundi started in 93, and then it carried on till 2005. So I went out there in 99, and uh, so I experienced six years of that war. It was very, very dangerous. I live and work out of Bujumbura with my family. And sadly, after 10 years of peace, why are we the poorest, hungriest, most miserable, all that? Because after 10 years of peace and, and slowly rebuilding, uh, last year it kicked off again. And so this is all around our, our houses. You know, so I'm there with my wife and kids and they set up roadblocks and burnt tires and, and uh, they wanted regime change. The president decided to stay for a third term. And uh, so this was the result. And these guys... Um, these guys in these pictures will, will either be dead or they've fled the country or be in prison right now. That, that was the options for those that uh, took to the streets and demonstrated. Even the ladies peacefully demonstrated, but they uh, got uh, tear gassed and water cannoned and likewise had to flee the country. And 270,000 people have fled the country right now and out of a small country. So it's grim. So there I went out as a young, young man and, and uh, totally ready to die. You know, not... That might, that might be weird to some of us because I, I suppose most people fear death. But there's loads in the Bible about, you know, there, there being no need to fear death. And you know, the Apostle Paul wrote, For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. What shall I choose? I desire to depart and be with Christ, but com- there's more work for me to do. Convinced of that, I will carry on a bit longer. But they are very exciting days, you know, because people listen to you if you live authentically. And uh, because, you know, white people, they all fled the country because it was the most dangerous country in the world, but that's when I went there. So people were going to listen. And, uh, and, you know, the UN and NGOs, non-governmental organizations, there was like a taxi service that would fly over those areas. But people were dying in those areas and therefore being neglected. And so we went to those areas and we risked our lives. I went on a motorbike and one time I came back, 40 people being killed that day. And we got through. And uh, you learn loads of lessons in extreme situations that that totally apply back here, but you learn it the more starkly. Like, you know, what matters in life? What, what matters in life? People matter, don't they? Stuff doesn't. But most people in Wanish, with respect, I think probably live like stuff matters more than people. It's a challenge, isn't it? C.S. Lewis says, anything which isn't eternal is eternally out of date. We're not going to take it with us. And uh, that's, a, that's a really important lesson. Also, if you think you're going to die next week or next month, as I went through a lot of my early years out there, then you're not going to waste today. Because today is so important. It's a gift. And there's so much to live for, and life is so rich. But it's easy to lose sight of that, particularly in a, in a peaceful place like here. It's a blessing, but it can easily become a mixed blessing, can't it? I had this guy try to kill me a while back. He came to my house with a grenade to blow me up. He, he wrote me a letter saying he's going to cut out my eyes. And that wasn't a fun experience, but that was a great experience. Why? Because for the first time in my life, I said, thank you, God, that I can see. I mean, what a gift. And it is a gift, isn't it? It's not a right. I mean, ask a blind person. And so I come back from an obviously screwed up, broken place to a much more subtly screwed up, broken place because here we're in an entitlement culture, aren't we? And if, if you think, consider something your, is your divine right, then when you don't have it, it's an affront to you. And that, that's why our national pastime as Brits is moaning, isn't it? We're so good at moaning. Even pre-Brexit. Even better more now, aren't we? 
And so um, that was a real, a very powerful life lesson for me. Anyway, I didn't die, and I, I thank God that he gave me a lovely lady to share the journey with, and three precious children, and... Uh, I'm showing this picture, and I've told this story countless times, but it's very, very powerful, and it underpins everything that we do out there. And, and I tell this story because this girl, that was 1997, I'm holding her, and so she has now become that girl. And sort of 18 years later, she ends up being our babysitter. And, um, and my daughter is named after her. And I always said to Lizzie, I said, if, we, if we're blessed with a daughter, I want to name her after this girl. Because that girl, she started life down the toilet. So she was thrown away. Obviously her mum was going through a hell of a time because she threw her away. And she didn't die because her neck was caught in the U-bend of the toilet. And she was fished out. Someone reached down into the pit and fished her out, got filth on them in the process, cleaned her off, fed fed her through a straw like a little bird, and now she's growing up, she's that beautiful girl. And my friend who rescued her gave her the most fabulous name. Her name is Grace. And for those of us that do know Jesus, we understand why that's so fabulous. Because, you know, that is, you know, this is the most important thing I'm going to say this evening, if you're new to this, is that, you know, that's the Christian message. It's not about rules, not about religion. It's that, you know, religion is about trying to earn your way out of that pit by yourself. And some of us, we don't even think that we're in a pit. We think we're very nice people, respect, and we haven't done anything wrong. but, But we've all screwed up. And so you can't get out of that pit by yourself, but actually, Jesus, who's God with flesh on, he comes down and he picks us up and he cleans us up. He says, you're beautiful, you're made in my image, I love you now, live for me. And he gives us hope and meaning and purpose and he empowers us to be who he's called us to be. And so I love that story of grace. I want my daughter Grace to know that it's all about grace. You know, I want her to follow Jesus but, but as a response to what he's done because what's he done for us? He went that far for each one of us. And that is the message that is bringing incredible hope out there in, in Burundi in, in a very dark place. Just a few things. Having said, I, 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 you know, I don't want your money and don't want you to come out to Burundi, I would love you to pray. And a whole bunch of you already do pray. So do you want to grab that sheet there? Just pass it along. Uh, only sign up. Don't sign up again. A number of you already get this. But if you want to hear from me about six times a year, put your email down. And that'll be great. And because if more people pray, that's the fruit of our work. And I bought a bunch of books out there. So if you want to have a look at those, there's some books that tell loads of great stories. And one's a devotional. It can't be, can't be rubbish because it was voted devotional of the year. So if you want a daily devotional, do grab that. But again, that's not why I'm here in any sense. That's just a, a bonus. Now, if, you know, when we hear about malnutrition and uh, us being the hungriest country in the world, that's like this, it's hard to get your head around what that looks like. But there you see that beautiful blonde-haired girl. She's my Canadian friend's four-year, four-year-old daughter, Alma. And the girl who, whose hand she's holding is four. And that's tragic, isn't it? And once, you, you know, once you're a victim of early stages of malnutrition, you, you've got a pretty tough life ahead of you because your brain is stunted. You're never going to be able to develop fully. And uh, so there's a whole mass of people like that. And uh, we, we, we've done a huge amount in terms of, for example, the, these pygmies we work with. Basically, age six, the pygmies are the poorest of the poor in the world. I mean, they're scattered as a nomadic people group. But they have to, by law, they start school when they're six years old. And they, they quit school when they're six years old and two weeks because, because they spend the first two weeks in the classroom fainting because they're starving to death. And so one of the things we do is 3,000 pygmy kids 
each morning, every day, they get one bowl, one sort of beaker of porridge, and that keeps them going. And that enables them to carry on. And so it's, it's amazing how, how you can make a difference and, and, and prevent that malnutrition. This man, this is just an incredible story. You know, he was, he was falsely accused of rape. He's one of our star guys, Vinust. And uh, he's probably falsely accused because we don't, bri- we don't go down the route of bribery in terms of our projects. And so he was put in prison. Very quickly, the girl retracted the accusation. But he stayed in prison, not just nine months until there was a DNA test to prove that he didn't but uh, for a year because of uh, the difficulties of you know, corruption and stuff. But in that very dark time, he still had the chance to, to, be, to be a beacon of hope to people in utter hopelessness. And, you know, there are prisons and there are prisons. Can you imagine prison out there? Unless loved ones bring you food, you rot. It's uh, horrific. And, and he had a chance to lead 20 of his uh, cellmates into a meaningful relationship with God and, and give them hope. But, it, but it's tough. And his, his wife got death threats in the meantime and she's, they're, they're traumatized still. It's... Uh, it's not easy. This is a fabulous man, and uh, some of you prayed for him because a few months ago he was, he was arrested. He was, again, it was falsely accused, but it's a situation where people are, are arrested and disappear very quickly, uh, as suspected uh, enemies um, of the state. And, you know, I was, I was, when you've got a close brother and you don't know where he is and you don't know if you're going to see him again, anyway, I got a whole bunch of you praying, and thank God he's been released, but he's now fled the country and he's uh, in Kenya trying to work out what he can do as the next step of his life. So these are the pygmies. So when we, before we started working with them, they had a life expectancy of 27. And uh, so that was the chief of the village, Manariu. And, you know, he's, he's probably about 30, but he looks about 60, doesn't he? Because they age so fast, because they live in such utter poverty. But, uh, you know, a pygmy would be like the modern-day leper. You know how, um, well... Lepers were shunned. Pygmies. We wouldn't let a pygmy sit with us here. They'd sit outside. When they ate, they would eat by themselves. You'd wash their cutlery twice. And, uh, and so, basically, all, loads of other groups went to them. And their attitude was, you losers. You know, this is what you need. But they didn't do anything. But we went there and said, actually, you know, can we partner with you? And how can we help you? And so they said, well, we're starving to death, so we need food, please. And we're dying of waterborne diseases. Can you and get us clean water, and, and uh, you know, our kids need education, we've got no land rights, and can you do some advocacy for us, and can you teach us farming methodologies, and, and, and we just met all their needs, and went and lived, I didn't personally, but we sent a couple to live amongst them, and model, you know, the incarnation of going and being with people, and uh, six months along, he came along, and he had this stack of documents, he said, look, this, he was angry, he said, this was UN, World Bank, Oxfam saved the children. They came, they took photos, they did nothing. And now I've just watched you for the last six, six months and you are the real deal. And you are very welcome to my community. And God bless you. And, and yes, I, I've seen that Jesus is, is real in you and I want to follow him myself. And we had this beautiful breakthrough into the community. And, and one of the things we did was, was that, well, you can have a... Well, Brunian cows are useless, so they produce one litre of milk a day. But, but we bring in crossbred pregnant Frisian cows from Tanzania, which produced 10 to 15 litres of milk a day. And so what we did is we gave it to a, a, a loser, pygmy, and said, look, keep the, keep, keep, keep the cow here so that you know, when it goes to the toilet, you've got manure in one place, and it's not walking around trashing the environment, and the kid's not watching it 24-7, so it can get, the kid can go to school. And, and anyway, our top note is, is 10... 10,000 frombo, which is a four-pound note. A pygmy's never seen a four-pound note. At the end of that first month, he's got 15 four-pound notes in profit. 
And his neighbor is like, lose a pygmy, how did you do that? And, um, you know, give me a cow. And we can't give him a cow. You can't give him, everyone a cow, right? Although it was a pregnant cow, so soon another one comes for another family. But um, we can say to him, all right, you now plant cow grass because he's got disposable income to buy that grass. And so, you know, it lifts both of them out of the poverty and they can send their kids to school and they're getting, they're getting calcium and all that. And, and it's stunning community transformation, community transformation. You know, every year at Christmas, my parents family say, what do you want for Christmas? I'm like, I don't need anything. I don't need anything. But hey, give me a cow. You know, 650 good. Buy two legs. Buy a belly. You know, I don't know. And because straight away, two families, 12 people lifted out of poverty. Absolutely stunning. And, and that brings them hope. And it's uh, empowering because that's, that's what they live in. Can you imagine that? And for 300 quid, we build them three-bedroom mud huts instead of that because in that, lots of buggery goes on. And, you know, they're just... They're just it's, it's very bleak, you know, when it rains, they have one set of rags, they put it under a, a pot in the middle, and uh, they get wet, but at least they put on dry rags in the morning. So they're living sort of quite animal lives, pretty much, until we've come alongside and seen them completely empowered beautifully. That boy fell into a fire, and uh, his face just literally melted away, and that is after probably a dozen over... 15 years operations to rebuild his body. And I love it. You know, he slightly stalks me on uh, sending me text messages. It's so often like, but he's just so grateful. He writes me all the time because we've changed his life. You know, he went something like that to separate his neck and, and, uh, and now he's studying. He's top of the class, studying to be a nurse and he's so grateful and filled with hope himself in terms of living. It's beautiful. That lady was given the choice of how to die. She could choose to be macheted to death or clubbed to death. Or if she had five pounds, she could buy her bullet. And she didn't have five pounds, so she chose to be clubbed to death. She was cracked on the back of her head, fell on the mass grave. Nine of her family were already dead in that grave. She was buried. And a few hours later, someone walked over that mass grave and they heard a whimper and uh, they fished her out. She was still alive. The, the killers were still there, high on drugs and witchcrafty stuff, and they were freaked out. They thought she was a ghost. So they, they just let her walk away, this bloodied mess. And, uh, and now look at a beautiful lady. She's actually married. She's got two of her own kids. And she's adopted four kids from the other tribe. Now, some of us can sort of get that, but we can't really get it. You know, adopting those that represent the ones that killed mine. And I don't see, I don't see anyone really able to do that unless something profound has happened in their life in terms of an explosion of grace. There's a verse in the Bible that says God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. And so sometimes I think it's got to be supernatural when, when you've gone through such grim stuff to be able to overcome. Uh, and she has and she's living out a life now of, of, of beautiful hope and uh, inspiring others to forgive. These are all child soldiers and uh, it's a child soldier and prostitute demobilization program that we're involved in. And uh, all those boys there, they're, they're both murderers and rapists. And I can't say they're all transformed, but a couple of them were as we, as we got alongside them. But they're very screwed up on drugs and, and uh, had done some very grim things. And, and the, this was our star prostitute story, if you like. Again, I'm not going to say there's loads of success stories because it's tough from their background, but her name was Ange, Angel. And uh, she'd long been disowned by her family because she'd gone into prostitution. So they presumed, also presumed she was dead uh, because they hadn't heard of her for 10 years. And she used to service the UN workers, so she was quite a, a high-class prostitute, if you like. 
then she came on our program and she, she decided, I'm, I'm done with that. And she, she, she experienced grace. You know, parable of the prodigal daughter. And she, well, she, was, she was cleaned off and she's like, I, a new, I've got a new, a new hope, a new story, a, a, new, a new identity. And she, she really wanted to go back and tell her family about her newfound hope. And so she saved up some money to get the bus up country. And this will be crazy to us, but the day before she went up country to seek reconciliation, restoration with her family, her, her two brothers up country in the hills had a vision that someone important was coming the next day and that they were to prepare a feast. And so they prepared this feast, not even knowing who was coming. And then Ange oh, steps off the bus, you know, back from the dead. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, you can't deny a story, can you? You can come out and meet Ange. She's part of the same project that my wife's been involved in uh, subsequently. And uh, it's beautiful. It's just stunning. This lady, again, you can't deny a story. She looks a bit grumpy in that picture, but she's not at all. She's, she's a turbocharged nutcase, really, because, I mean, her story was that she, she went deaf, dumb, and blind and curled up into a ball and for seven years she was wheeled out onto the patio by her parents to catch the sunlight and then wheeled back in. And I'm sure lots of people prayed for her over that seven years, but on this one occasion, a bunch of young people came and prayed for her in Jesus' name. And as they prayed for her, her whole body uncoiled. And she got her sight back. And she got her hearing back. But the only thing that was lacking was her speech. But she joined the church choir by faith. And three weeks later, the Lord released her tongue to sing his praises, and she will not shut up. <laughs> she's turbocharged. But you see, you know, she's been on national radio. You know, she, that, was the, she, that was the vegetable. That, was the la- that lady was the, you know, and, and now she, she's walking around sharing her living hope. It was Peter, the Apostle Peter, who wrote, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that's what she's out there sharing with people. Now, this, this is sad, and, and, but, but, but very profound. You know, this uh, lad was dying of AIDS. And he has died of AIDS. And uh, funny enough, the meathead to my right, I actually met him on the back of a donkey in the Egyptian desert, and, uh, and uh, he was South African. But there was something familiar about his eyes, so I said, did you, did you do all your schooling in South Africa? And he said, yes, apart from three years at a prep school in Buckinghamshire. I said, no! He was my tennis partner when we were 11 years old. And, uh, and that meeting changed his life because he was working in the city as a merchant banker with a standard bank and he was doing very well for himself but he didn't have hope. And that could be some of us here, you know, because you can have everything to live with and nothing to live for, can't you? And so he was doing very well for himself but he didn't have hope and we, uh, we were part of his journey of discovering hope and he left merchant banking city, he went back to South Africa to start a charity that has literally impacted tens of thousands of orphans. And his, staff, his charity is called Starfish. So some of you know the Starfish story. There's been a storm and uh, loads of starfish washed up on the shore and a starfish out of water is going to die and you've got this little boy in his youthful zeal and he's wandering around and he's bending over and he's weighing back in these starfish. But, but, you know, there's so many of them so he's not making much of a dent and that's exactly what some old geezer comes up to him and says, listen, little boy, look at them. There's just so many. You're wasting your time. What's the point? What difference can you make? And that little boy listened respectfully and then he bent over and he picked another one up. And he said, well, it made a difference to that one, didn't it? That's so simple, but so powerful. 
And Bongani was a starfish. You know, his dream was to see the sea before he died. He was meant to die before I got there. This is actually down in South Africa. I was on a speaking tour there a few years back. And uh, Anthony said, look, I've got this little kid I'd love you to meet. And we had a, a break in our schedule of three days. So I had three days with him. And he wasn't fun to be with because he was dying. But we drove down from Johannesburg, six hours down to Durban Beach, which is where that picture is taken. And he, when he, his eyes saw the sea, they lit up. And we put on our swimming togs. And then we paddled into the water. And this great big crashing wave came. He was bricking himself. So we got back out again but we gave him his dream. And then Anthony there, he'd flummoxed me with the question, what's God's purpose in Bongani's life? And I was in the back of the truck, the bucky as they call it, and, uh, and it was cold and it was nighttime as we were driving back to Johannesburg and he, this little boy, he, he snuggled into the crook of my neck, the snotty nosed, husky lung little boy, I was listening to him as his system was slowly imploding and I was totally broken. And I was wrestling with that. What's God's purpose in Bongani's life? And as I told you, he is now dead. But if we Wanertians, or whatever we are, here this evening, if we get it, what difference can we make? You know, he doesn't see us as 100 people here this evening. He, he sees, he knows each, God knows each one of us by name, and he loves us. And each one of us, he gives that offer of rescuing us and cleaning us off. And he says, just give your life to wanging back in starfish. One by one by one. And I've had the privilege to, you know, wang in thousands, tens of thousands, and hundreds of thousands. What, 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 what more exciting thing is that it to give our lives to? And it's not about the numbers game. It's about using our gifts for a bigger purpose. And we can only offer hope if we've experienced that hope for ourselves. And, uh, and then there's, there's truly nothing like it. So that girl in my arms there, she had AIDS. Her whole family died of AIDS, and she's been healed of AIDS. And that somewhat fries my brain because, you know, and faith, the Bible talks about us seeing through a glass darkly and then, and then we shall know fully as we see him face to face. And sometimes, you know, even in our faith journeys, if you've got all the answers to everything, then you're a dangerous person. You know, I, I, I don't think we, faith is, is it's full of ambiguity and nuance and, and different shades sometimes, isn't it? And, and, and we, we walk by faith, we don't have all the answers. And, and that, I'm like, oh God, I don't get that. Your sovereignty. I don't understand you know, why you choose this one and all that one. And we, we'll be wrestling with whys until we, we die. But I'm just grateful that Hannah's life has been rescued. And that boy in my arms there, he's the size of an eight, a three-year-old. He's eight years old in that picture. Because when he was three years old, he watched his mum and dad hacked to death. And that trauma stopped him from growing. He's forced to eat his dad's genitals. But that's the sick realities of war. He's found in a rubbish dump. We've been eating mud for a year and had to cut the stones out of his gums. I mean, as grim as it gets. But the beautiful part of his story is that age eight, you know, Jesus, I said, he said some challenging things. He says, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. If you want to be forgiven, you must forgive. If you won't forgive, you won't be forgiven. And so little little Johnny there, in his childlike faith, he says, all right, Jesus. And he forgave those sickos. And do you know what happened when he forgave them? Literally started to grow again. I mean, it's the power of God, isn't it? It's the power of forgiveness. It's the power of renewed hope. And that's beautiful. And then that next girl, she arrived at orphanage. She'd never taken the clothes off her back. You know, when we hear these stories, by the way, I'm, not, I'm so not into guilt jokes. It's not about guilt, but it is about gratitude. Such a difference, isn't there? So again, back to those death threats. You know, it, it, they just, it just made me grateful. 
I'm glad I can see. I'm glad that I'm still alive. I'm glad that I've got these things that I turn in my house that just give life giving water. I don't have to walk 10 miles with a jerry can on my back. I'm, I'm glad that I can read and write as one girl stood up in one of our youth camps. She said, confessed to sleeping with a priest to get three pounds for her school fees. And all you precious ladies here, you're like, I wouldn't have done that, but you would have done that because otherwise you'd still be in first grade, illiterate. There's no room to judge, is there? And we got access to the National Health Service as my pastor's 18-year-old brother died in his arms because he didn't have three quid for the medicine across the counter, three quid for a disease I had three weeks ago. But I've got three quid, so I'm still alive. But that's sick and wrong, isn't it? I think sometimes God wants us to get angry. And we have the National Health Service, and we moan about it, don't we? So next time you moan about the National Health Service, I want you to picture me standing next to you and smacking you in the face. Let's be grateful. Grateful people are happy people. But true gratitude, again, comes from recognizing the giver and being in relationship with the giver. That, that man said to me, it's going back a while, but he said, will you take one of my kids in your luggage so, that one of my, so at least one of my family survives? You know, what do you say to that? And this is Romaine. Her, her, her husband was taken to the side of the road and had, a, had his head blown off for being tall. He was from the wrong tribe. Six other men were killed with him. So she's a widow with four kids in a, in a country where there's no social security system whatsoever. So we gave her a job. I made sure we built her a house. I mean, James talks about pure religion, doesn't he? He says that it's pure religion that God appreciates is taking out care of widows and orphans, basically. And, uh, and she's a great woman. But you know what? She exudes that hope. I, you know, I asked her, you know, after I gave it time for her to grieve, and then I, I said... Um, well, then how was it, you know, when you heard that he died? She said, you know, I just rushed into my bedroom, I fell on my bed and I wept. But you know what? God is so faithful. You know, when you hear that sort of testimony, it's, it's so challenging, isn't it? I think sometimes in our culture, we, we mix all the blessings of, of, of access to counselling and things like that, you know, we can become so introspective. That, and I'm not dissing counselling, but do, do you know what I mean? You know, sometimes we just need those people who just get out there and minister in, the, in their pain and brokenness and, and, and God meets them in that process and, and, and they experience him in a very real way. That's a good friend. He's had to flee the country recently because he didn't endorse the, the next term. That's a, a prostitute gal whose life's been transformed. I actually hired out a couple of prostitutes a, a year and a half ago and um, you know, they thought we were going to sleep together and I, I just said, have the night off took them to the hotel, have the night off, stuff your faces, enjoy the hot shower, and let's, let's talk about it in the morning. And obviously they were blown away, but met up with them the next morning. The, the happy ongoing ending to that story is that, you know, they haven't gone back to prostitution, they're now studying and doing well, and it's just a beautiful story of bringing hope again to the individuals, because it is one by one, isn't it? How do you transform a, a, a community? It's one by one, just getting out there. And there's loads of needs in your community, aren't there? There's the single mums that are busting your guts to keep the show on the road. It's so tough. They're some of my heroines. And there's people wrestling with addictions and the need us to get alongside them. And that our challenge may be in very superficially respectable and all fine one-ish, you know, is that there's loads of brokenness here, isn't there? There's loads of pain. There's loads of needs. And he wants to use each one of us. To, maybe our biggest pressure is time or lack of time. Because we stuff our lives so full of activities that we've got no margins. And maybe God wants to say, just slow down, ease up, cut out some of those things so that you've got time to be able to, to get alongside people. 
Funny, the African said to the European, you guys have got watches, and we've got time. And, uh, you know, there's loads of screwed upness in Africa, and I can't stand their lack of good timing, you know. Pitch up at a wedding. If it says 2 o'clock, if you arrive at 3, you're the only one there, literally. <laughs> I promise you. Uh, you know, 2 means 5. Uh, so there's frustrations, but there's, there's a lot in there, isn't it? You guys have got watches, we've got time. Because people are more important than schedules. And uh, that's a, a dear friend who, apart from being an advert for Colgate Toothpaste, <laughs> is, um, he's a precious brother. And he, uh, he's, he was from the royal family, which is not a monarchy anymore. But his father was uh, one of the 17 regional governors. And his father was buried alive in a pit. And Jordani has gone back with the murderer, hand in hand, arm in arm, to the spot where his father was buried alive. And they've shared grace. Hope, reconciliation, forgiveness. That's powerful, isn't it? And so there he is with his family, and after mentoring these street kids, so that's one of the projects involved in the street kids project called New Generation, after mentoring these kids for 10 years, one of them in his house, lived with him 10 years, he's just helping him. And then he went and raped his three-year-old daughter. I mean, it's so, it's so costly. You know, embracing the fullness of life. I don't give a soft sell, but and of course his family said, what are you doing? Look after your own. He said, no, no, I'm not going to allow the evil one to destroy this project. And he's carried on and it's gone from strength to strength and beautiful stories of these little kids who were the most hopeless, right, on the street. And they're going to end up as tomorrow's rapists and murderers. And now these kids, literally, they've just been to Rio, pre-Rio Olympics, it's the Street Kid Olympics, and we, got, we sent four athletes there and they got three golds, two bronzes and a silver. And then they come back as national heroes. And then they've got a platform, you know, literally greeted on TV and radio. They arrive back at the airport and they can go around the country sharing hope. It's stunning. It's beautiful. And that's them. And that's uh, the first lady. Last few pictures before we, I just uh, wrap things up. But uh, that's Freddie there. Freddie's my soulmate out there. That's the first lady coming to our orphanage. He's built three schools. Every school is the best school in that part of the country. Uh, in their separate provinces, got the best results, best grades, because I believe, we believe in, in aiming for excellence and giving the best. And these are orphans with a horrible start to life, but giving, get, being, really getting a chance to do well. And, uh, you know, Freddie, I mean, what pushed him to start it was that uh, he was teaching at a school 20 some years ago, 23 years ago, and an evil man threw in a grenade into his. Uh, school kids dormitory and he carried out six dead bodies the next day of his pupils and he says I've got to do something so he sold his two cows came to the capital went to the group that I have got behind scripture union and he said God sent me here and and, uh, they said well we've got no money so we can't pay you and he said well if I starve to death that's God's fault and he says he learned to fast for three years willingly and unwillingly he said he had one pair of underwear one shirt one of each thing and and after the end of that three years I arrived and we became soulmates. We bombed around the country in the most dangerous roads in the world, uh, sharing hope, and, and we had phenomenal impact. But, you know, here's a guy who never wore underwear or shoes until he was 14 years old. He used to walk two hours to school, two hours back from school. So he could only start school when he could walk four hours a day. He used to get back each evening, and his mum would ha- hold his feet to the fire and sort of massage them because they were so sore. And now I've taken him around America and Canada speaking and challenging crowds and wherever he goes says our problem in Africa by the way is not poverty it's not uh, HIV AIDS it's poor leadership 
And so we're part of raising a new generation together and, uh, and uh, these kids are all a part of it. And this was a hill a few, just a, a short, you know, five years ago and now these kids, all with incredible stories, uh, being raised up. <laughs> and they're the future, right? And so many are utterly hopeless. And this is the, this is the flagship school. So this is the first English-speaking boarding school in the country. Those are absolute, those are key leaders' kids. So it's you know it's seven hundred dollars a term, which is completely prohibitive to uh, all but very few people. So those are leaders of the future. And and you know, I was speaking at a meeting a few years ago, and all the big cheese are there. It's a three-line whip, president, all, all the big guns. And at the end of that meeting, a, a, a lady came up to me and said, "Simone, Simone, Oranibuka, Simon, do you remember me?" I said, "Sorry." I don't remember you. She said, 15 years ago, I was on your scripture in youth camp, and now I'm a member of parliament. Oh. I was like, bring it on! Because, you know, it takes time to see transformation, doesn't it? But we're just sowing seeds of hope the whole time, and it's into the most broken of circumstances, and then 15 years later, they, raise up, they rise up and to be agents of transformation, marching to the beat of a different drum, not being into nepotism, ethnic hatred, corruption, that sort of stuff. And wherever I go to schools now, I say, hey, 15 years' time, what are you going to be? They don't have small dreams. And uh, who knows what they're going to be, but uh, these kids certainly in 15 years' time, by dint of their privilege, will have uh, access to positions of power and authority in the nation. That's me up country having a shower, whoopsie-daisy. We have an expression in English, that's how the other half live, and that is literally how the other half live. That's how half the planet lives. In terms of a bucket shower and a hole in the ground. And Again, enjoy your hot shower tonight, don't feel guilty about it. And... Uh, and that's just having some fun. You've got to have some fun in the mix amidst lots of grimness. Uh, that girl, last couple of stories, that girl, she, she, um, killers came to her family home and they all fled through different doors and she, she, she survived. She found out later that only her elder sister survived and she was taken by the killers and she was, but she, she, she felt God saying to her, don't worry, I'm not going to let you die. And the, the killers gave to a bunch of ladies who held a machete to her throat but they didn't kill her. Uh, and instead, they, they, well, they kicked her to death. And, and she was buried, like the other lady, in a mass grave. And like the other lady, she wasn't fully dead. And, and some guy felt God's prompting from where he was to come, he said, to, to, to rescue her. So this bloke literally just felt the voice of God say, go to this grave. And he went there and he, he found, he fished her out, Theophis is her name, and he took her home. He risked his life in the process. And, and, uh, and then after three days, she didn't feel safe. She thought her position was compromised. So she fled to the forest. And in the forest, she saw girls raped and people killed. And, and then the killers came and they set the forest on fire to flush people out and then hack them to death the other end. And, and the, the fire came right up towards her. And she thought, well, I'm not going to let myself be burnt here. At least I'm going to run and take my chance. But she heard God's voice saying, no, stay where you are. I will not let you be burnt. And the fire came right up to her and stopped. And her words are, her story is, she, what she said is, I don't know how I can still be alive, bearing in mind what I've seen, what I've been through, but, but Jesus has taken my burdens. I feel free. Stunning, stunning hope that she exhibits there. And uh, the last picture of the Burundian church. I'd love you guys to pray for Burundi because it is in a hell of a mess. And it is desperately dark. But in the darkest places, the light shines brightest. And I've shared you, with you 25 minutes of, of, of stories that I could talk for hours of incredible people. All the most amazing people I've ever met have been, have been Burundians. Because, you know, you know, if you're still hanging in there with hope when you've had your wife hacked to death or your daughter raped or whatever, and you're still in the game, then it's incredible substance, isn't it? 
And that would be Romans 5, verse, verse 3 to 5, where it says, and we, we even rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering develops perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. And so, as I've shared those stories with you this evening, they are so far removed from Warnish, aren't they? And let's be grateful that they're in a set, you know, because what a lovely part of the world to, to, to have the chance to live. And we don't feel guilty about that, but we feel grateful. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully you feel a renewed sense of gratitude. And, you know, when you're tempted to complain, just nip it in the bud. Because we are from the top 0. something percent on the planet in the history of the world, you know. Most of us post-Second World War, it's been an incredible season of peace, hasn't it? But then maybe we're a bit worried because of Brexit and, you know, what that might mean and, you know, on, on so many levels. And those, those, those concerns are absolutely legitimate. But I hope those stories would inspire you again to think that, you know, God is so much bigger. And the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And we can trust him. And I can trust him with my wife and three precious children. That's my biggest challenge, I'll be honest with you. The children. I mean, my wife bought into it when I proposed to her. I said, are you ready to be a young widow? It's not your average proposal, is it? <laughs> but she bought into it. But then we have this precious little life. So you might be thinking, you're a nutcase, Simon. You're irresponsible. I said, no. I think the best gift I can give my kids is, is to model to them a life that makes a difference. That gets it more excited about people than about an extension on the house. Because anything which is internal is internally out of date. And an authentic faith where they see the power of God and don't think Jesus is a man in a frock. And I know that's not the heartbeat of the church here. You know, we, we, you believe in a, in, in a God that changes lives. But we've got to model that, haven't we? We've got to, you know, people see authentic lives. And that is attractive. And that's our challenge here, isn't it? In a very respectable culture. It's a real challenge to stand out and be different and model, model a greater level of meaning and purpose. But that's what God offers us. So I'll close with a story. I was speaking a few years ago in, in America and I just burst into tears in front of the people because um, I, was, I was wondering which of my colleagues had been killed because there'd just been a rebel attack on our capital uh, and, and my office was being used as a, as a launch pad by the rebels on the lo- local military installation. I, Literally didn't know which of my guys were dead. In fact, none of them were dead. The neighbor was killed. 300 people were killed in that attack. It turned out that most of those were 11 to 15-year-old child soldiers sent in as cannon fodder by their cowardly superiors. And a child doesn't choose to be a soldier, does he? I mean, they're just forced away from their homes to do grim stuff. And there's this one little boy, John, and he was a follower of Jesus. And, you know, he, he didn't have all the answers, but he just tried to live a consistent life with these bloodthirsty, hardened men up in the bush, uh, and, uh, and, and, what, and they abused him, and they you know, mocked him, scorned him, slapped him around. They just carried on, just trying to model the hope he had. And then one day, the camp commandant sort of lined them all outside their tents, and he was livid, because, well, he said, listen, men, there's been some munitions stolen, and that is a very serious crime, as you know, so, so whoever is responsible, come forward right now, we'll give you ten lashes of the whip, and we'll let the rest of you go. And no one came forward. So he's effing and blind. He said, look, we are going to find out where those stolen weapons are and, uh, and you better come forward to receive ten lashes of the week. I'll give you my word. We'll do that. Come forward, take the punishment and then I'll let the rest of you go. And 
And still no one came forward. And then he said, look, right, okay, last chance. Come forward right now. Otherwise, we're going to go through each tent, and the tent in which we find those stolen munitions, all 20 men in that tent will get the 10 lashes of the whip, but I give you my word, one person come forward right now, take the punishment, the rest of you can go. And still no one came forward. And then you guessed it, little, little Johnny stepped out from the back, came towards the front, he said, Monsieur le Commandant, so you just gave your word that if someone came forward to take the punishment, you'd let the rest of the people go. Well, I'll take that punishment. And the commandant was temporarily stunned, and then he you know, shouted, and then every single man here knows that it wasn't little, little Johnny who did that, and his body won't be able to survive the ten lashes of the way. So come forward, take the punishment like the man who ever did this. And little Johnny said, so with respect, you just gave your word. So they tied him up. And they started whipping him. One, two, three, screaming. And, and then the toughest man in the regiment, who was guilty, David, jumped from the back and said, stop, stop, it was me. And little Johnny, through his tears, he said, uh, no, David, the commander gave his word. And they finished him off. And they led him away. And the next day, the commandant went to the makeshift hospital and looked through the curtain. There was, there was on the slats, was little Johnny dying and, 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 and David on his knees, weeping in front of Johnny, saying, Johnny, Johnny, why, why did you do that for me? And, and Johnny said, I did it so that you could be free from the punishment of one of your crimes. But when Jesus died on the cross for you, he died for all the things you've ever done. He loves you, David. And he died. But it wasn't just little Johnny died, it was David died. The, the old, bloodthirsty, violent, thief, guilty man. Because he had this, this raw encounter with grace. That thing that he couldn't earn for himself, that forgiveness of God in Jesus on the cross. And that's what brings hope. And that story is just, again, it's another way of trying to connect with us, those of us that are new to this. It's like, you know, I'm not saying you can't find hope in, in other things, but do you know what? I think in our culture it's hard, isn't it? People are, are looking for hope and they're looking for it in, in positive, the power of positive thinking or, 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 or yoga or, or mindfulness or, you know, or just yeah, all those things. They're, 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 they're okay things, but they're, they're missing. It's like there's a key part at the heart of this puzzle and we're just missing God. And those of us that already know him, that's what we've got to offer. And we're not saying we're any better than anyone else. But, you know, I came from a, I come from a wealthy background. I went for a very privileged education. I meet up with my, you know, the cream of English education. You know, we meet up years later. And, you know, at the start of the evening, it's, yeah, yeah, I'm marvelous, darling. And then, you know, after the eighth pint, I just see the mask come down. And, the, you know, because you can have everything to live with and nothing to live for. And people can be minted, but spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus is the hope of the world. And Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And so biblical hope is completely different from the world's hope because the world's hope is like, I really hope that Arsenal win the championship this coming season. I really hope that Brexit doesn't mean that I lose my job. I, I, I really hope that my shares maintain their, their, their price. I really hope, but it's a completely uncertain hope. But the Christian hope is totally certain. It's being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. We believe in life before death. So 
you invite Christ into your life and he brings meaning and purpose and direction and, and, and courage and hope that we believe in life after death, but into eternity. And tomorrow after lunch I will be at a thanksgiving service for my mother-in-law who died a few, last week. And it's a thanksgiving service because Christian hope is beautiful because it's a living hope says 1 Peter 1.3, through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. It's the living hope. So sometimes you go to funerals where you know that person had no faith at all, and it's a very bleak, dark experience, because you sing, I don't know, John Lennon's song, you know, Imagine, or something, and it's like, people have just got no hope. But tomorrow, for Rosemary Corp, it will be a celebration. My son said this morning, can we Skype Granny in heaven to, to, to see what it's like? That she could show us around, and and we can't do that, but we will meet her again. That's not this sort of fuzzy feeling trying to create false hope. That's the living hope. That's the hope that's promised in the Bible. And that's what those of us that follow Christ have got. But it's the option for those of us that are just checking things out. I'll call it a day there. So I hope some of those stories will have encouraged you, strengthened you. I don't know what you're going through right now. We could be in tough marriages. We could be you know, cripplingly financially struggling. We could have horrible health issues, fears in our lives, anxiety, kids off the rails, you know, all sorts of things that are part of the, the screwed upness of life. And Jesus says, I want to be with you in there. And I want to give you hope. And if my guys out in Burundi can, can live through what they're living through, then you can too. We can. Not because we're amazing, because God's amazing and he loves us. So why don't you bow your heads and I'll just pray for each one of us. Father God, I thank you for everyone who came out here tonight. Lord, you know their story, you know their journey. Some of us, we're already on a journey with you. Some of us, we're just checking things out. Some of us, our hope is assured. Other of us, it's, it's much more of, I hope, I wish, but it's, it's, it's not a sure hope, it's not an anchor, like the Bible talks about. Lord, I pray that you'd meet with us where we are. Lord, thank you for that beautiful story, that picture of grace that you come down, you reach down, you pick us up, you clean us off. And you say, I love you. Thank you for that lovely picture of sacrificial love of Johnny dying for David. Just a picture of what you've done for us in Jesus. So I pray that all of us, Lord, we would experience that living hope, that hope that does not disappoint us. And whatever issues, worries, burdens we're carrying this evening, we could lay them down on you. You said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Thank you for your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.